Turn with me to the book of It Wasn't Supposed to Be This Way. (laughs) Chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, if if you're visiting, sorry. (laughs) Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Moving right through. After today, we'll have four chapters left in this. I don't know about you, um, it's blessed my socks off sitting and looking at some of the things that God chose to, um, to write through Solomon in this book. Um, things that maybe um, the church doesn't look at too much. It's kind of one of those books that's hidden, or uh, if, if it is acknowledged, it's kind of like, you know, um, I don't want to be depressed, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go read something else. And, um, and, and there's just, uh, there, there's so much God and so much right thinking and so much ultimately wisdom from above that we need that is exposed in this book. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. In fact, the next few chapters are really going to focus, the book's already focused on wisdom, but even even more heavily on wisdom in the coming chapters. And so, chapter 7, I'm going to be picking up where Chad uh, left off in verse 15, and we're going to take it all the way to the end. And some of you are like, gosh, this is going to be long because it's me, um, and that's a lot of verses. But um, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, get us over to our stake as soon as possible. So uh, he says, verse 15, chapter 7, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doings. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold, of your hand, uh, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Yeah, we'll get to that. (laughs) See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We are living in what's been called the information age. And I think that um, um, it, it's really clear that the internet <laughs> is, is a big part of why it's considered the information age. I mean, think about it. You and I um, can think about something or want to know about something at any moment. doesn't mean it's going to be true, by the way. But at any moment, uh, if we want to know something, basically at the press of a button at our fingertips, we can immediately go and get that information. 
It's, it's astounding. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's actually become mind-boggling. I've noticed with the apps I have and the feeds that I keep up with and look at every single day that the amount of information that's going on on those feeds into my brain is actually like makes my brain want to explode. It's actually creating depression and anxiety and stress. And I'm not saying it's not a blessing that we, we, get, we, we, we have this stuff at our fingertips, but it's become like an overload of knowledge. An overload of, of information that's, that's really hard to, uh, uh, to, to, to deal with. Um, if, if my washing machine breaks down, I can go onto YouTube and find somebody fixing it with a video camera right in front of me, and I can do it along with them. I, like, I can figure that out right there. If I want to know who the most influential person is in the United States right now, I can go on and find out that it's Britney Spears. And I know that you needed to know that. You're welcome. So, but that's just, that's Time Magazine said it. So um, if I'm stuck in a video game, I can immediately go online and get unstuck. Not that I play video games, but if I did, um, and I, yeah, I do. And, and, like, you can go on and, and you can cheat, basically, essentially. Like, we can, we can do... Um, anything. And it's interesting to think, considering the word that was prophesied to Daniel at the book of Daniel, which says, you, Daniel, set up these words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And uh, we got to ask ourselves, like, what does that mean? What did Daniel mean by it? Um, we, we can't assume that it meant that we physically are evolving as time is going on to have bigger brains. Right? In fact, I would argue for the opposite. Um, so, so what does it mean? It means that there is more um, knowledge, more information available, accessible at any time to us than ever before without little exertion to get it. Right? So here we are, 21st century. We have more information than ever, more knowledge than ever, and far less wisdom than ever. In fact, it's probably fair to say that as knowledge has increased in our world, wisdom has decreased. And by the way, knowledge isn't bad. We all know that knowledge is a good thing. But without wisdom, it's dangerous. It's not always profitable. If there's something that, could have, that should have jumped out at us by now, like I said earlier, traveling through the book of Ecclesiastes, is that wisdom is important to the child of God. Wisdom matters. It matters greatly. And it's not just any wisdom that matters. It's, it's the kind that's rooted in the truth from above, not below. Not the wisdom under the sun, but the wisdom from the one who is above the sun. That's what's ex uh, of extreme value in regards to meaning and purpose and life. And what is wisdom? Well, wisdom's just that thing that allows us to sift through all the information that's coming at us every day and put it in its proper place. It allows us to rightly interpret it and then put it where it belongs. Knowledge adds information to your brain. Wisdom interprets it and puts it where it belongs based on your interpretation. In other words, one onloads and one offloads. <laughs> one front loads and one back loads. But if our wisdom isn't from above, we will misinterpret and misappropriate the information that we collect. We see this going on all around us today in the world that we live in. Um, as an example, how many of you have known those Christians that are really, 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 really smart and knowledgeable with their Bible? But it's just really, really dirty the way that they handle it. 
right? So they can pop off Scripture. They, they know their Bible. They know where something's found. And yet they have no idea how to properly divide that knowledge to put it where it belongs. Anybody know those people? I was that person for years. I'll just be honest, right? Where I, I, I prided myself on knowing my Bible really well, but I had no idea how to divide it. There was no wisdom that was being um, exercised with the knowledge that I had. And God really wants us to have both. And the truth is that the Word of God uh, it, it can be super dangerous without wisdom, without us having the wisdom to rightly divide. With, that's how cults start. You know what I mean? This is how a lot of the things that we've seen that are like, how in the world did that happen? That's how it happens. It's someone with just enough Bible knowledge to be dangerous, but no wisdom to go along with it. And so we need wisdom in order to... Um, um, come at this to, to, to understand, to know the heart of God and the intention of God, the author, through it, rather than what we think about it. Otherwise, we're going to get into all kinds of trouble. You can be the smartest person on earth and the biggest fool at the same time. At the same time. And the desire to be wise without consulting the most wise one is a vain exercise. That's really what Solomon's telling us today. It, too, is an exercise in futility. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, God's wisdom is different than the world's wisdom. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise in the world. Romans 1, 21, 22, although they, the human race, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because their wisdom was not right wisdom. It was not godly wisdom. It was not wisdom from above. If our wisdom we seek and desire is not from above, we will misinterpret the information we collect and actually be found to be fools. With that being said, we can now move into Solomon's craziness here on wisdom. Um, and he's going to set this up with some, just some observations he's made. Uh, he says that in verse 15, right? In my vain life, I have seen everything. In my vain life, I have seen everything. And, and now he's going he's gonna to go forward and, and share with us a few of those things uh, that he has seen. And I'm going to attempt, what we're going to do is just attempt to extract four truths concerning wisdom out of this text today. So that's going to that's gonna make it go a little faster. But the, the first two are going to be, I'm going to spend a little more time on than the, than the last two. Okay. So number one, uh, we're going to find in 15 through 18, where he says, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why do you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Number one, wisdom from above can help us battle karma. Wisdom from above can help us battle karma. Some of you are like, I'm a Christian, dude. Like, I don't believe in karma. Like, get that corn out of my face, right? I don't, I'm not into that voodoo, right? I don't believe in karma. Well, we, we kind of all do. I'm going to show you here in a second um, that, 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 that there, there's, there's uh, some practical ways that we think and we live that actually follow what that is. Um, I know we don't want to believe it to be true, 
Um, but if we're really honest about how we think and how we respond to things, when stuff around us goes down, I think we would have to admit that we, we do this. Uh, most of us are closet karma Christians. Um, and, and, and I mean, seriously, listen to your thoughts when stuff goes down. Listen to things that you say out loud even, or other Christians around you say out loud when something goes down. For instance, when something bad happens to someone we've decided is wicked, you'll hear things coming out of you like, well, they, they just got what was coming to them. They just, they just got what they, they, did, they deserved it. Or what comes around goes around. Right? Like we'll say things like this. We'll respond this way immediately. How about when something bad happens to someone that we've determined is good and innocent? We'll say things like, they didn't deserve that. Right? They were so young. It just doesn't make sense that this would happen to such a good person. Such an innocent person. You know, 9-11 was yesterday, and if, if your TV's like mine, it was filled with images over and over and over again of that horrific day. You know what I mean? And that's, what, that's my immediately respond, response when I see those images, when I see those tapes rolled. Is there were people in there that had no idea this was coming, and I have no idea what they did to deserve that. Just an immediate response. Solomon, in his wisdom observations, is going to kill the notion of karmic thinking that we have. He's even going to kind of make fun of it. Because some of you I know are looking at these verses right now going, what in the world? Like Solomon's been, like he's on drugs. He's smoking crack. He's saying things that are actually opposed to Scripture. No, he's actually kind of making light of this type of thinking, even though it's no laughing matter. First he says, look, the reality is that bad things happen to good people, and not only that, good things happen to bad people. That's just the way it is. That's the truth of it. This is a true statement, so true that Jesus will go on to endorse it. In places like Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, where he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, we may think that karma is wise thinking. Good happens to good, bad happens to bad. But wisdom from above does say differently. That there's something else going on. The truth is that there are things that happen to good people and bad people that have nothing to do with payback, that have nothing to do with reward, that have nothing to do with credit, and nothing to do with debit. So, what Solomon, in effect, is saying is that if we live in a karmic universe, something's broken, like something's majorly malfunctioned. Because it's, it, it's, it's the opposite, a lot of times, of what we actually see going on around us as we go through life. This goes without saying, but if karma is a valid truth, what does that say about the life of Jesus? What does that say about the death of Jesus? If karma is true. He must not have really been who he said he was. He must not have really been the righteous one. He must have had some other things going on the side. Because the worst thing that could actually befall somebody is what happened to him. Is the way that his life ended. There's only been one truly good person that's ever had something truly bad happen to him. And he signed up for it. And that's Jesus. None of us are in that category. 
We live in the world in a world that's not supposed to be this way. But we're part of the problem. We are the problem. Sin lies and dwells in us and we like it. So we follow it. The only one who had no sin came and experienced the wrath and the horror of sinful man. Right? Karma had nothing to do with it. Redemption had everything to do with it. It's to bring you and I righteousness, right? Only one who was good and had a really bad thing happen to him. Now, I need to clear up these couple of verses here because some of you are super excited right now, uh, probably especially the teenagers. Uh, verse 16 and 17, don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. And you're like, well, I can do that. Like, this is one of the, this is one of the first times like, I've come to Scripture and been like, I think I, I, I want to do that. I want to follow the Scripture. Right? In fact, I'm going to put it on my refrigerator so that it can be my life verse and I can look at it every morning. Right? Don't be too wise. Like, why would you do that? Right? Um, this is a prime example, by the way, of why wisdom needs to um, coincide with our biblical knowledge. <laughs> if someone just came and pulled these verses out and handed them to you, that would look pretty bad. Uh, the rest of our Bibles don't allow it to say what people would think it's saying. It would actually re- reject or deny that, right? Um, so what the heck is Solomon talking about? Well, there's two primary enemies that the Christian have. There's two primary enemies that you have and that I have. And that is the enemy of self-righteousness and that is the enemy of self-defeat. Both of them. They're both killers to our witness of Christ, our joy in Christ, and our life in Christ. First, he speaks to a kind of righteousness here that is wrong and that is sinful otherwise known as self-righteousness. And the perception of it with ourselves and the perception of it that we can have of others. Oh, that person's righteous, that person's not. That person's righteous, that person's not. I'm good. I'm good. I'm one of the good ones. I vote Republican. I hate abortion. I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. I'm one of the good ones, right? But, But this dude... This dude over here is not safe because he's one of the bad ones. He, he does things I would never do, right? And he doesn't do things that I would do. See, most of us define our righteousness by what we do, but we define it even more by what we don't do. By what we don't do. That's why you and I always look and scan the horizon for somebody worse. I don't know about you. It's one of my talents. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll, we, can, we, we will look around for somebody who's worse because, obviously, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Right? Yeah, I, I'm a bit rusty in this part of my life, but I don't beat my wife like that dude. You know what I mean? I may be blowing it in this part of my life, but I don't murder people. I'm not like Hitler. That's always a good one, right? I'm not as bad as that dude. You know what I mean? I don't torture animals. I mean, on and on and on, we can point it like anybody and be like, I'm, I'm good because I don't do that. Right? And, and the problem with this kind of thinking in the Christian is Jesus. He, like, ruins it. Like, he does, have you, anyone ever read the Beatitudes lately? Anybody read the, read the Beatitudes? Like, so we thought the law was, was bad as far as how it condemns us, which is one of its jobs. 
just to make us look at it and go, yeah, I, I haven't done any of that. I, I need help, right? But we don't. We tend to even come to the law and be like, I think today is my day that I can handle these ten things. Just today, right? And we can't. We can't. But Jesus takes it even farther when you get to the Beatitudes. Nobody is allowed to come out of the Beatitudes thinking they're okay. He kills any bit of self-righteousness that anybody tries to grab hold of and hold up, and he, he just exterminates it. He just blows it apart. He lets us know that we are much worse than we think we are when we read the Beatitudes. Right? So, so, so Jesus doesn't allow for this kind of thinking. And he, and, he, and he hits this whole... He actually wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand how horrible self-righteousness is. Because I think it's one of maybe our biggest struggles as Christians and children of God. And also, the, more, the longer I read my Bible, I think it's the thing he hates more than anything else as far as sin, is self-righteousness. And so he will tell us stories like two guys went up to the temple to pray. One was a tax collector, one was a Pharisee. One was a bad guy, one was a good guy. Right? I mean, tax collectors had their own category apart from sinners. Because that's how bad they were. Right? Like they were the worst of the worst. So the bad guy, the good guy go up. It says the good guy goes and he stands alone. He doesn't even want to... Like he's too good for the other people that are up there praying. So he like separates himself and he, and he lifts his head into heaven and he tells God all of the rad things that he does and how it's so awesome that he's not like all these other people surrounding him. Right? And then you've got the tax collector who it says was so ashamed, so ashamed of who he was that he didn't even go all the way into the temple. He stood way back. He couldn't even lift his head up to heaven. He was so ashamed. He beat his chest. He was so ashamed and miserable. And what does he get out of his mouth? All that he can get out of his mouth is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus turns to his disciples after that story and he says, who do you think went away justified? The good guy or the bad guy? You know? This stuff's all over our scriptures. The good guy or the bad guy? The bad guy went away justified because he knew that he had no good. He knew that without God's goodness, God's mercy on him, there was nothing there. And therefore, he went away justified. He went away justified. I can be self-righteous. I can't sit around and compare myself to others in those moments. Because the, the, the truth is, the twisted truth is, we're our biggest fans and our biggest enemies. So when I'm on my biggest fan, I'm going to always look around for someone who's um, you know, worse than me to feel good about myself. But I'm also my biggest enemy. And this is really what we're talking about here as we move through this section. Where um, I also am the biggest sinner I know. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done some of the things that other people have obviously done in this world. But the truth is, when I'm stripped down before holiness and righteousness for what it is, when I'm stripped down before God, I'm the biggest sinner I know. And you should know that about yourselves too. Because when you do, you will receive a righteousness that is not of your own if you ask for it. These are the people that Jesus came for. This is why he came. Self-righteousness is the biggest hurdle to Jesus. It's the biggest hurdle to forgiveness. It's the biggest hurdle to redemption. All of it. 
Because we don't think we need anything from God. We got everything we need. And it's a lie. It's not true. We're much worse than we think. And God knows exactly how bad we are. We can't fool Him. And this young tax collector knew it. And so Jesus looks at him and says, it's, it's the bad one that went away justified. And then he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the threshold to glory. Humility in our sins before perfect righteousness. See, there, there's none righteous, not one. No, not one. None of us. And because of that, perceived righteousness, whether it's of ourselves or whether it's of someone else, is wrong too. And I'm convinced, again, the more that I read my Bible, that this is one of the biggest things there are. And and, and I just want to encourage you in this. I know I'm taking a lot of time on this. Like, there's there's a lot of garbage going on in our world right now to navigate through and to sit through. It's just getting more and more complex. Right? Even in the church. But one of the things that we must stand on going forward, no matter how bad this world gets, is the humility that we may exalt Christ in our actions and our love and our unity for each other. A humility. It's going to take humility for us to do that. Because I can't believe, I think the thing I've been most disgusted about is what I see coming out of Christians' mouths towards other people that aren't like them. Like the church has gotten real ugly. It's become a really ugly witness to who Jesus Christ was. We are not better than anybody else. We are not sitting here today because we're better than anybody else. Do you guys get that? Do you guys get that we were them? We were them. And as soon as we start to forget that, we're going to start ruining the testimony of Christ through us. And so I just want to encourage you to grow more in humility by shrinking so that you may be more Christ-like in your love and in your unity and in your speech and in your mission. Hopefully you're all on mission. Hopefully your heart breaks for the person who's lost just like you were once. That they may know what you now know. That they may come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It is no time to fight, people not our fight. It is time for us to make the name of Jesus big in a place that desperately needs it. Now more than ever, at least here in my lifetime. Watch the way you speak to others. Watch what you say when you say it. Whether it's on social media or whatever. Because you're representing the Most High King. Alright. Enough of the rant. And by the way, um, I love you, and two, this is all for us first. I know we tell you that. I'm going to tell you this again. So I, I'm not just sitting here preaching at you like you guys are the problem and I don't do these things. No, like these things get preached to us first. I own this first. I appropriate this text first. Like God um, throws me in the washing machine first with this stuff. You know what I mean? Because I don't do it all right. I don't, I don't do this all right. I, 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 too, need to hear this and receive it and own it and live it. So I just want you to know that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, fellas. Right. That was um, one person got it. Oh, brother, where art thou?
How many of you fellas? Okay. On the flip side of self-righteousness, Solomon says, don't be too wicked. And I know we're taking a lot of time on this one, but again, the other, the other ones are going to move quicker, maybe. Um, don't, be, don't be too wicked, he says, on the other, on the other side. For, for us, what does that mean? Um, and again, the, the teenagers are like, heck yes. Like, I'm going to underline this. Like, mom, can I have your highlighter? Um, don't give yourself over to sin due to exhaustion. Don't give yourself over to sin due to defeat. It's defeatism. Here's, our, here's my tendency as a Christian, okay? Um, I, I determine to be good for God, um, to be righteous for God, to obey and follow all that God has commanded me, only to find that I can't fully, right? And, and so in despair, I swing to the other extreme at some point of not trying anymore. What's the use? Why do I even do this? Right? Anybody else ever do that? We just can throw up the white flag and just surrender and be like, I'm done. Right? Since I can't fully um, do, do, perform this, I guess I'll just do this instead. That's defeatism. Uh, and we must understand that we cannot be without sin in this body. That's just the reality. We cannot be without sin in this body, which is why we desperately need Jesus. But we battle for every inch of righteousness because we have and follow Jesus. Does that make sense? In, in other words, yes, I sin, but sin is no longer my owner. Sin is no longer my master. Sin is no longer my identity. God has given me a new name. And He's given you a new name. We have new names. You know why? Because we have new identities. I am no longer David Thompson, the sinner. I am now David Thompson, the child of God. Even though I do sin, my identity has been shifted. This is Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, even 6. If you go and look there, this is what Paul's talking about. Is we are no longer slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. We can now swing and fight. You and I, because of Christ in us and who He is and what He's done and what He's accomplished, do not have to lay down anymore for that other old master. He's no longer your master. When you fall short, we can get up, we can acknowledge it, we can confess it to God, and we can get on with fighting. Put the boxing gloves back on. You know what I mean? Because He has won this fight, and He is going to win this fight with us. You and I are just in the middle of it. So we sit around so easily and go, what's the use? I give up. And Jesus is saying, don't give up like I've already won. I've already accomplished righteousness for you. So keep walking towards it. Keep walking towards it. We can fall into self-righteousness, but we can also fall into self-defeat, which can also kill our Christian walk, kill our Christian testimony, kill our joy, kill our peace, kill our hope. Because it's all about condemnation then. I don't know about you, but I've got to do this every couple of weeks to myself, where I lay in bed at night and just go, you're probably just a fraud. You know what I mean? Like, like everything that you think you have and everything that you're doing is probably just fake. It's probably not even real. In fact, God's probably just using you. It's probably just a joke. Like he's just using you to do his thing. Like none of this is real. Where's that come from? Defeat. 
not victory. And everything about the cross and Christ on it and everything about the tomb and Christ not in it says victory. Victory for me, a sinner. Victory for you, a sinner. This is what it's all about. We must know that. We must hold on to that. And it is in holding on to that that you and I will move in righteousness. We will move towards righteousness. We will walk in righteousness. We will keep swinging away at sin. Yeah, we're way, we're way off. We're way off. Way off. Solomon summarizes this passage, verse 18, you know, which says it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. It is he that fears God. It is he that fears God, which we've been talking about a lot lately in this book, that will keep from falling into either extreme. Either extreme. The one who fears God. Whether it be self-righteousness or self-defeat. So, so um, number one, I'm embarrassed to say this. Number one, wisdom from above can help us battle karma. Okay? Number two, wisdom from above gives us strength. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers um, who are in a city. Um, most cities have one ruler, uh, and it can, it can be strong. Like, the city can be pretty strong pretty stable. Solomon's saying that uh, godly wisdom is like a city that has ten of those. Ten. That's super strong. Right? I mean, imagine like ten Alexander the Greats. You know what I mean? Like that's brutal to the rest of the world. It's not one man that's strategizing, planning, um, considering, defending, protecting. It's ten. Ten. This is what wisdom's like if you have it. Wisdom from above. In other words, the walls are built high. The walls are strong. They're fortified, positioned well, not easily breached. The commanders are not easily outsmarted, deceived, captured, overtaken. Inside the city is found peace and safety and security. It is governed well. It is run well due to the multitude of counsel, due to having wisdom. See, godly wisdom governs your whole life. It's it's an entire worldview. To have wisdom from above. It governs your thoughts so you don't start letting your mind wander into bad neighborhoods. Into lies. Into falsehoods. It governs your speech so that you don't spit poison. It governs your decisions so that you don't find yourself in regret or bondage and consequence, which is different than karma, by the way. It governs your reactions so that you don't find yourself in debt to whoever was on the other end of your reaction. It governs your emotions so that you can navigate the turbulent waters of your feelings by finding a calm passage through a sound mind. See, wisdom from above makes you strong. It it, it makes you able to stand. It makes you able to please and honor God even when everything around you is attempting to draw out the worst in you. Even when everything around you is attempting to take you captive, which is what's going on. Colossians 2, 8 says, see to it, I like the King James in the beginning of the still because it uses the word beware. So like all I ever see is like a fence with barbed wire coils and this big sign that says beware. Like whatever is on the other side of this fence is going to chew you up. Don't come over. Don't go over, right? And that's how, that's how it goes. 
Beware that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, worldly wisdom, according to the elemental spirits of the world, worldly wisdom, and not according to Christ, wisdom from above. When we have wisdom, we're able to sift through things and know who they're from and what they are, where to put them. Wisdom from above gives us strength. We need wisdom from above, which gives us strength because of what verse 20 says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We need wisdom from above because there's no one who does good on his own. There's, there, we're, we're all weak. We're all susceptible. We're all open to attack. None of us are without sin or the propensity to sin. We're all vulnerable. We're all susceptible to do things wrong, respond to things wrong, say things wrong, treat people wrong, think things wrong, interpret things wrong, because something is wrong with us. Therefore, we need to be governed by something that is right, and that is godly wisdom. We need wisdom from above that gives strength because of verses 21 and 22. Do not take... Do, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I say I will be wise, but it was far from me. Sorry, I went too far. We need wisdom that's from above to give us strength because we're going to be hurt by people close to us. We're going to be hurt by people that we love. People that we take care of. People that we lay our lives down for. This is what we do. To each other. And how will we deal with that when it happens? How will we respond to that? How will we interpret that? Godly wisdom will say, I know what you want to do. I know that you've been wronged and you want to take matters into your own hands, but you don't, you don't have to. You don't have to. Right? And there's no satisfaction in that. You're all going like, eh, what a bummer. I know. I, I, I get it. But wisdom will tell us you do not need to repay evil for evil. You just don't need to do it. It's not the right way to go. You don't need to get revenge. Wisdom says it's only your pride that's been damaged. Like, you'll be okay. This is something you can come back from, right? You don't have to take it to heart and let it consume you, consume your life, consume your thoughts, consume your relationship with that person. You don't have to do that. Because after all, you're no better. And there's the wisdom. It's that you're no better. See, worldly wisdom in this instance may say something like, I'm not going to stoop to their level and respond. I'm better than that. That's not wisdom. That's self-righteousness. Right? Wisdom from above says, I am that trash talker. I have done that to somebody else. I am no better. See, wisdom allows us to see the ugliness in ourselves when we see it in others, thus diffusing the need to retaliate, to exact the wrong. I know that it's debated whether this belongs in our Bible because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Okay, But there's a story about a woman caught in adultery. If you go into your Bible, some of your Bibles may not have that story at all. If it does have it, it probably has parentheses or brackets around it to let you know that that story was not found in the earliest manuscripts, Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John. But it's so vintage Jesus that I'm going to use it. I believe it does belong there. If you go to the end of the book of John, what does John tell us? There's so many things that Jesus said and so many things that he did that that couldn't be written because there's places that that we can't contain it. We can't contain it all, okay? So I'm going to go ahead and give this one over. Um, Plus, like I said, it's just so vintage Jesus. 
but it's, it's the woman that's brought by the Pharisees before him, and they stand her there, and they got their rocks. It's clear what they're doing. It's like, this woman's been caught in, caught in adultery, and they're trying to catch Jesus in something too, like they always were. And so they ask him a question like, here's what Moses said we should do with her. What do you say we should do with her? Right? So they're trying to put him on the spot and trap him. And he doesn't say much. In fact, he just uses this entire thing with very few words. And he kneels down on the ground and he, he, he fingers the dirt. Like he, he draws something in the dirt. And then he stands back up. And he says, he who is that without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes back down to the dirt and he does something else. And one by one, these accusers, these dudes with rocks, start walking away. And it's like, why in the world is he drawn in the dirt? Like, that's it. He, he diffused it all just by drawing in the dirt twice. And here's what I like to think. This is what I like to think is that the first time he went down, he drew a box with columns and headers. And he put their names at the top of the columns, each dude that was present with a rock. Like, just put their... And then he stood back up and said, he was without sin, cast the first stone. And then I think he went down a second time and started filling in the columns under the names. You know what I'm saying? Like, how does this guy know these things? Like, oh my gosh, like, I've been exposed. Like, yeah, I've done these things too. Like, whatever it was, they knew. They knew clearly by the time it was done that they had no cause to do what they were about to do to this lady. I believe somehow he showed them, he exposed to them that they were no better, no different, deserving the exact same thing that they were about to bring down on this woman. And you and I, it's good for us to, to live that way. To be mindful of the fact that God knows the list. Doesn't mean He focuses on the list. Doesn't mean He's going to judge us according to the list. We're in Christ. But God, God knows stuff that you and I don't even know. Ugly things about ourselves. Like, that's how bad it is. And this is just a good thing for us to keep in mind when we go to re- take revenge on somebody who's wronged us. We're no different. We're no better. That's wisdom. That's wisdom that causes you to think of yourself and reflect back onto yourself and take your own inventory rather than the offenders. And that's wisdom. That's all that Solomon's talking about here. All right, let's keep moving fast, fast, fast. Um, Number three, wisdom cannot be mastered. This one's kind of weird. This is found in verse uh, 23 and 24. And we all know that Solomon Solomon tried. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? If you ever think that you've arrived, you are far from arriving. Okay? If you ever think that you've arrived, you're you're far from arriving. Uh, In our sinfulness, we as Christians can take good things that are even God things and make them bad things. Because that's what our hearts do. We can even take good things and make them bad things. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. It just manufactures constantly idols. It doesn't matter if it's a good thing or a bad thing, something we should do, something we shouldn't do. We'll take it and we'll use it wrongly for ourselves. Right? We can make wisdom an idol too, just like everything else. We can take wisdom and make it about us. But God won't let us because we cannot master it. It's too deep. He's too big. We can walk in it. We can grow in it. We can find blessing in it, but not tap it out. 
Solomon wants to plumb the full depths of wisdom, but acknowledges that it's too deep. He is unable. God is simply too big. Romans 11 comes to mind. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? It's too big. It's too deep. This is why we can't figure out everything that God does. This is why, again, I'm looking at images yesterday of the Twin Towers going down and still looking for an answer like most of the people who lost family members in those towers. An answer may never come. There are some things left just for the, the wisdom of God. To the wisdom of God. I think if He, uh, if he revealed everything to us, our, our heads would blow up. They just can't, they just can't handle it. I can't even handle five minutes on Facebook, so like with that that knowledge. So yeah. No, they'd blow up. The wisest man on earth, Solomon, had limitations in the deepest insights of God's dealings and the way that he chose to set everything up, and so do we. And so what we need to do is we need to gladly accept whatever God chooses to reveal to us and simply trust him by faith with the rest, which also is wisdom. That too is wisdom. Just to trust God and be okay with it. The wisdom of God cannot be mastered. This last one's going to hit a little closer. This is going to go quick, but um, wisdom can keep you from chasing after your greatest idols. This is verse 25 to the end. We won't even read it for the sake of time. You can read it. We've already kind of read it. Wisdom can keep you from chasing after your greatest idols. Specifically here for Solomon, sexual immorality. Um, this is the way that I believe this is interpreted. <laughs> um, sometimes when you see woman, uh, women being mentioned uh, in the same context of wisdom, like if you go into the Proverbs, she will represent maybe folly or something. Don't believe that's what's going on here. I think he's talking about um, a challenge, ways that he's uh, under the sun that he has tried to uh, find fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning in life, just like everything else in this book. Women was one of them. If there's something we can all agree on concerning Solomon's more unpleasant side, it's sexual foolishness. He had plenty of it. The beauty of it is that he's not so vain and embarrassed that he's not willing to be honest with us about what he's learned in that weakness. The dude had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I told, um, I told a, a millennial this week that concubines were call girls, and he goes, what's a call girl? Call girl, so... Like it all fell flat on my face, right, Jordan? (laughs) Our Bibles tell us that these women drew his heart away from God, so he was just a victim. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh at that. He wasn't. He was not just a victim. Now, Now notice what he says in verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Do you know why Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife? Wisdom. Wisdom. The Bible tells us that when people think that they are free in such things as sex, they're fools. And they're trapped. Trapped in its snares and nets, as Solomon puts it here in verse 26. And some of you men here today know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm not stupid enough to think it's just men. Some of you women might too. But the wisdom of the world has a different narrative than the one that the Bible has about sex, doesn't it? The world tends to think of sexual freedom as an act of liberation. 
autonomy, individualism, personal rights, wisdom even. And that to suppress your sexual urges and desires is to suppress, suppress your maturity, the discovery of yourself and what you really want. That you're stupid, naive, and foolish if you save your sexuality for a God-given life partner. That it's even disastrous if you do. Do you guys know what the average age is now for people tying the knot and getting married? 29. Higher than it's ever been. You can go back 50, 60 years and just watch it go like this. You know why? Because it's smart. We need to go out and explore so that we know exactly what it is that we want and need. That doesn't explain why divorce rates are higher than ever. Abortions are higher than ever. Single parent homes are higher than ever. Right? But that's the world's wisdom. Now, you just need to wait. You need to do what you want. You need to explore what's out there. The Bible would tell us something different. There's a lot, there's a lot of Christians today. And, and look, there's no like, oh, married young is right and married old is right. That's not my point. Like, God gives us liberty in that just like he does in a lot of things. To get married when it's time to the right person, right? But I hear so many Christians that have actually bought into this now, that actually bag on people getting married young. Which Paul just flats out, flat out tells us that's a reason to. Like, if you burn with lust, go get married. Some of you are like, well, there's got to be more to it than that. Well, there kind, there kind of is, but that's actually a big deal. It's actually a big deal to God. Like, go get married. We were walking through a park the other day. Or, no, we weren't. We were at um, the food, uh, the concert in the park down in Lapine, and there was this dude, probably 10 years old, maybe 11 years old, this kid that walked by, and he had a sweatshirt on, and it said virginity rocks across the back. And I just kind of like, it took me back, because like, you don't see stuff like that anymore. Like in the 80s, when I grew up, once in a while, you would like see something like that, and it'd, and it'd be like, okay, all right. But now you don't see something like that, especially walking around out in a public place like that. And this kid, I don't know, I don't know if someone, like, if he got it from Goodwill and he just didn't know it was on the back or what, but it was rad that he went walking by and it's like, that's right. That's right, it does. It does rock. This is God's design. For what? For our joy. Not our suppression. For our joy. That we do things His way, even with sex. Sex is good. Read your Bible, it's good. And I know for years I grew up in the church like it was the bad word. Like it was the thing that you never talked about. And when it was talked about or referred to, it was always in a bad light. The Bible doesn't do that. And we don't have to do it. It is, it is good what God has made for us to enjoy. All right? But do it in the fireplace. Fires are good in the fireplace. If you take the fire out of the fireplace, it, it burns things. It makes it so smoky out here that we can't meet out here. You know what I'm saying? That's all God's just telling us where it belongs. Why? So for our, for our full enjoyment of it, right? It doesn't look like, like it did with Solomon. And he should know, right? Like this dude should know. If anybody has the right to say, I looked for all the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning in sexual pleasure, like, and it wasn't there. It too failed me. It too eluded me. That's not it. That's not it. And he would know. 700 wives, 300 concubines. What are you laughing at? 300 concubines. All right, we need to wrap this up.
Let's just go to 29. That's what he says here. Verse 29, last verse. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He goes back to the beginning. He, goes, he takes us back to Genesis, the, the origins of the Bible narrative and how we all got into this mess, right? He recaps the narrative for us that God created everything good and that we broke it. And that we've been trying all kinds of things in our strength and our desires and our sinfulness to recover Eden ever since. And we can't. We cannot. It's a trap. So let's go back to verse 20 once more. What does this mean? What does this mean? One more look there. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does no good and never sins. When Solomon penned this letter, that was true. But it ain't true anymore. There is one who lived a life that you and I couldn't live to bring us something that we desperately need and desire. It's what this whole book's about, is that there's something in us that says, I need meaning and fulfillment and purpose somewhere. We just go to all the wrong places for it. We go to all the broken and follow thing, fallen things to find that, and they cannot give it to us. So Christ came, the righteous one, the sinless one, so that you and I may have life, and we may have it, what? Which is not talking about material goods or health. It's talking about regardless of our circumstances, we have the most precious thing in which we have meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And that is in Christ. That is in our relationship with the Most High God. That He came and He fixed that. And fear is the beginning of wisdom. Just like we've been talking about, because fear leads us to... Fear of God leads us where? To Jesus. To the wise one. To the one who is the embodiment of wisdom. Fully. That we may learn and that we may grow and that we may be satisfied in who He is. I know we're hearing a lot of the same stuff kind of over and over in this book, but I really think we need to. I don't know, but I I know that I need to. I need to hear this over and over again because I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go and have like a piece of steak like stuck onto my plate and then um, that's going to become my idol. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to leave here and, and, and there's going to be something that grabs my attention and says, I got something that will help you and I'll probably buy it. And, and, and so will you. And so we need to continually come back to the reality of the only one, the only one who's able to actually make good on the promises. That's Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for this day that there's no smoke, that the air is pretty clear, and um, just that we get to ultimately look at you. That as we come and we hear your word preached, God, it. Um, it just speaks of, of your glories, your greatness, God, over all things, your wisdom over all things. And I ask, Lord, that we uh, would be granted more of it, that we would have more of your mind rather than the world's, um, that, that, uh, that we would continue um, to, to decrease and you would continue to increase in us, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our lives, what we do what we devote ourselves to, what we want. I pray that we would hear the words of Solomon and just take him at his word. 
to know that he's tried a bunch of stuff, even stuff that we've never tried and maybe we've always wanted to, and said there's nothing there. There's nothing that compares to you. And I hope that's a reality for every person here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.